and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which prods at the texture of the latest food books. This week I am with surely everyone's favourite food hero, Claudia Roden, who brought Jewish and Middle Eastern food to the world. Yotta Motolenghi and Sam and Sam Clark at Morrow are among the many chefs who say that it all started with Claudia. I ask everybody I meet what they eat. And I, I, and I go deeper. I want to find out why did they eat what they ate? What was their life as peasants? Or what was their life uh, of their grandparents? And who were they? At 85, she's got a new book out, Med, which brings her personal stories and inventive flourish to the flavours of the Mediterranean. But as the word on food and identity, I began by taking her back to her 20-year-old self, capturing the recipes as she talked to the Jewish diaspora fleeing Egypt in the Suez Crisis. When the Jews left Egypt, it happened very fast. Some of them had only two weeks to go, and they had to leave everything behind. It was very traumatic. And uh, so for quite many years, for at least 10 years, I was seeing Jewish refugees from Egypt all the time. Of course, they had settled somewhere else and they were coming uh, through London. There were some who had settled in London. But what I realized very early on was that they were exchanging recipes and it was so important uh, for them to have a recipe. They were asking each other, give me your recipe for so-and-so, and I'll never see you again, and maybe uh, it'll be something to remember you by, because there had never been any cookbooks of any kind at all in Egypt for any community. It was a a cosmopolitan kind of world that I was in with many people from different communities, uh, Syrian, Greek, Italian, um, and the, many others as well, um, apart from the, the general population. But the Jews themselves had come from all over the Ottoman Empire. And so there were Jews from Iran, Jews from Iraq. Mostly, uh, there were a lot of Jews from Syria. And uh, three of my grandparents came from Syria. And they had come because when the Suez Canal was built, uh, Aleppo, Aleppo, which had been the great um, uh, stopping area for the camel caravan trade, of all the trade routes to the east, died uh, as a merchant centre. And so a lot of the merchants left, and many of them came to Egypt. Some of them went to America, uh, some went to Manchester even. It's the food of identity, and it's this desperate need of people who are leaving their home to take their soul food with them. Uh, I remember talking to some Italians who had moved to Melbourne and they were driven by economic 
need. They were economic migrants, but they were taking the food from home and even in the immigration camps where they were staying to learn some English before they could settle in Melbourne, they were growing their own tomatoes, their own basil, so they could smell the food from home. It's so important. Now, you've done that yourself, as as your family did, so you really understand this. Yes. Um, You know, let's talk a little bit about how important it is for uh, the diaspora to take the food from home. Um, I'm thinking about Afghanistan now. I mean, I did an interesting interview recently with Dakani Ayubi um, about her book, Parwana, and her book is absolutely filled with the story, the recipes of Afghanistan uh, that her parents insisted on keeping absolutely authentic. Because if you mess with them, if you play yeah. with them, and you found this with your stories from the Jewish diaspora, yeah. it's almost like there's a rupture. Yeah. It, you can't play with them. Absolutely. And yes, I felt very early on that f- recipes were about roots, about identity, and it was so powerful. And really, I was uh, asking people their recipes. First of all, it was my own relatives, who are mainly all Syrian foods, and also one grandmother who came from Istanbul, who had Judeo-Spanish recipes that were as old as the time they left in Fort Spain in 1492. Yes. And so I realized Uh, that I couldn't change a single thing and I didn't want to and I felt I would betray them if I did and when when it was uh, I felt also that they were uh, heavy uh, with full of emotional baggage that a recipe was just such an important thing and it stayed with me, the idea that a recipe has so much. It's part of an old civilization. It's been part of handed down generations in the family. Yeah, it's uh, treasure. It is, it's a total treasure. And, um, and there we would have lost it. I felt, if I didn't record it, uh, nobody... Nobody had done it yet. Well, exactly. There wasn't anything in print. There really wasn't anything in print. And and what you did, you know, introduced a whole new lexicon into the food dictionary. And we've seen the impact everywhere. I mean, you know, fast forward... Well, to to your book, Med, you you take you have the luxury now to play with a lot of those recipes. You mix them up. You had a little flourish. You you take some ideas from here and there, and you mix them up. There is a luxury in that, isn't there? There is, and I did spend um, yes all my career, decades and decades, because I, after I researched my own and the people leaving Egypt, I researched all the Arab world, the Middle East, and with the same idea that it is the actual, the real thing, that it's my role to to collect. It's my role to pass it on to England or to America, to pass it on as it is. And I didn't... I. I didn't want to change anything. I felt absolutely, even uh, I remember 
there was a nun who gave me recipes. I went to stay near her convent, in another convent, because I was told she had fantastic recipes, which she did. She came from a grand family. And then suddenly she said she was older than I was, so she died a year ago. And she told me, but Claudia, if you change anything, then don't take my recipes at all. I don't allow you to change. But then I did call her when I was testing and I said, you know, I don't want to change anything, but if I do it this way, it will come out a little bit better without changing it. You can improve a recipe. You can intensify the flavor. And she said, all right. You can do it. Oh, wow. But so I felt that. But you know, I... But she must have trusted you, though. She must oh, yes. have trusted you to, oh, to yes. keep the essence and the integrity of, of the recipes and its stories through that and then to put your expertise on the top of that. Yes. And your own take, you know, and, yes. and it is about trust, isn't it? I think then I was, uh, at a time I was researching, there was no invention. Nobody ever wanted to do anything other than what their parents did. In every country, they, in, and in every country they didn't do, in Italy they didn't want to do what the other regions did. They only wanted to do what their mother did. And so I, uh, I found it, uh, yes, that is, and I was only researching home cooking, regional cooking in the home, because everywhere, apart from France, everywhere, the grand restaurants, the good restaurants did only French cuisine. You could hardly find other food than by asking people asking people how what they cooked at home. But over the years, all that changed. And of course, I came into a world where invention is the culinary culture of the world. And uh, invention, it happened in Italy not so well. I witnessed all the nouvelle cuisines, first in France. And in France, uh, a lot of chefs, regional chefs, um, complained that nouvelle cuisine ruined the food for them because yes. they were doing their own thing all over France. And the French themselves were travelling every so often to, get, to go and, and eat in all the regional restaurants around France. But mm. gradually, because some of the guidebooks would only write about the restaurants that did innovative cuisine, uh, they had to do innovative cuisine. Actually, those I spoke to didn't, but they said, now, wherever you go, it's the same, because they're not innovative, they just copy what the, the few great innovative chefs do. Yes. People just copy, yeah. and it's all the same. Instead of all the variety, the diversity, the regional diversity, what we got was uniformity. And now we do have, you, we have global uniform, uniformity because the fashions are global. 
And, and it's interesting you use that word fashions. So I was going to say, you know, how do you feel about those food fads? You know, you, you talk about roots. You talk about real recipes that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years that are absolutely everything to do with identity. Yet in the last 20, 30 years, just in London, you must have seen an enormous yeah. change in the food around you. Wonderful riches that we have had from the mass immigration. But each of those stories comes very often with struggle and hardship and those people are holding on to them. T- to mix them up, as many restaurateurs and chefs are doing, uh, for the sake of a fashion, for the sake of a trend. Um, I mean, Israeli food, I'm just thinking of. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a lot that has to do with Jewish food, but actually there's a lot to do with trendiness as well. I mean, what what do you feel about that? Yes, well, I think uh, that certainly um, there are great chefs who have such fabulous taste and they do uh, innovate and there's no real reason why they shouldn't. I don't think that English people or anybody else should just eat exactly as a person in the south of Spain eats or a person in Iraq or in Iran. There's no reason at all. And I think that some of them, and I can mention a few names, Yotam is, I am a great fan of Yotam. Yes, yes. And also uh, many others uh, are great and I witnessed gradually when uh, my Mediterranean book came out and then my Italian book, I, a lot of chefs invited me to go and see them and they were using my book. And they were doing it slightly different because they were chefs and they didn't have what I had, my role to do, to pass on to pass on exactly. And if it was very good in taste, uh, there was Alistair Little, there was mm-hmm. the Eagle Pub, where yes. the Sam and Sam Clark of Morrow, they told me that is where, you know, they found my Mediterranean, my Middle Eastern yeah. book. And so if it was good, I think it's fine, it's marvellous. But uh, what... I am wondering uh, is that uh, people, the chefs, they brought it on themselves in a way because I noticed that first in Spain, Ferran Adria said he got the idea from Jacques Maximin that you must not repeat yourself. If you're a creative person, you must not repeat yourself. And so you have to change at every season and do something new. And so it was a huge burden for Ferran because he kept doing a dish and never again. And he would record it. I've got all his books here with the photographs of each dish and never again. But here... It's not Max, uh, Ferran or Jacques Maxima, but it is also a bit the public. Because the public, people used to love going to a restaurant to eat the same thing year after year and say, I want to go and eat that. I'm going back there. And now 
the the people are contra- have di- contradictory wishes. On the one hand, they want authenticity. They want to go to Jose Pizarro and, and uh, have authentic. But they also ask him to do something new. They, when he does something new, invented, that doesn't exist, they're thrilled. Also, Italy. I remember going to Italy in, in um, America, invited by Lydia Bastianich, who actually st- was the person who uh, was responsible for it there. And I went to lunch with her, and she asked me, Claudia, how do you research? And I said how I researched and uh, how I ask everybody I meet what they eat. And I, I, and I go deeper. I want to find out why did they eat what they ate? What was their life as peasants? Or what was their life uh, of their grandparents? And who were they? Were, so I, and then I went and researched the history of Italy to see what were the influences from abroad in Italy at the time, who were the occupiers, you know. And so she was silent and she said, well, I can see you are a recorder. I'm a chef who is a creator. And you know, everything we ate, I had never seen anything like it in Italy because it wasn't in Italy. The chefs in America, in Italy, America, were doing things like an egg yolk, a ravioli filled with an egg yolk only. And yeah, everything was not anything that I had discovered in Italy. Yeah. They would have taken elements, wouldn't yes. they, of... it was a ravioli. And then you play with those ideas. That's what creativity is. I mean, it's, that's interesting, the difference between you as a recorder and her as a chef. She is there to please the public, to yeah. delight. And, a, and I was delighted. Yes, of course you were delighted, because what yeah. you were seeing I, was the results of all that research, all those treasures that you've brought yeah. to people. You, it's like a, a, a pleasure ground that you have given them to play in, and it's their job to play, isn't it? And that's what's really changed food culture. I mean, I, Absolutely. I'm, I'm always so excited by what's happening in the food world because it feels like the toys are all there. We now know so much more about the world. And it's not yeah. just about the food. It's all those stories. The depth comes from the stories that people like you have told and mainly you. Can I tell you something? What I find is that, yes, I find people playing with all the themes and all the things that I have brought. And in Israel as well, they all agree. That's how they learned about their own cuisine from my books. But now I learn from them. And I've learned from them throughout Mm -hmm. because uh, tradition also can improve and and, uh, they do things better. Yes. They have ways because they experiment and they are chefs. They go on and on every day, trying again and again until they get something marvellous. So there is, a, there is also in 
places like Spain, the traditionalists want to go on doing tradition, but they learn from the creators. And the creators get all their inspiration also from tradition because they have to get it somewhere and they want to get it from their own. It's like learning the rules before you can break them. It's, uh, it's, it's learning the, the real depth of it and it has to come with those stories. It doesn't make any sense without, without the stories. It's just so much more than ingredients. Let's go on to your food moments, Claudia, because they tell the story very much of you. And we do know a lot about you, but I think in this book we find out much more about you because of that creativity, those flourishes, the fact that you're you're playing with those ideas. Let's go to Syria. This is where um, this is about your great grandfather, the the Muhammara walnut and roast pepper dip. Why why did you choose this one first of all? Well, I chose it because there's a photograph of the chief rabbi on the page behind as well. No, because I felt I wanted to establish my identity, the personal one, is that we as Jews of Egypt, we were Jews of Egypt. My parents were born in Egypt as well, but uh, uh, they were born just after their their parents arrived. And... um, and yes, we identified in Egypt as Syrian Jews. And Syrian Jews have a very, very strong identity. And their food is considered the pearl of the Arab kitchen. It is the most refined cuisine. And it is also because they were, it was the first Islamic empire, the capital was there yeah. in Damascus. And when there is a uh, a capital of an empire there's usually a court cuisine and that filters in yeah. so, but I did feel maybe I should say who I am that initially we as Syrians this is what we ate and of course I have hundreds of Syrian dishes in my in my earlier books yeah. hundreds but I chose this one Maybe to be honest, because everybody is doing it today, it's become fashionable. And so I thought people ask me, friends ask me, how do you do Mohammara? So because I am now at a stage in my life that I don't want to spend hours and hours cooking and I can't, I, I can't do too much. I still want people to come and eat. And so I made it very easy for myself. I, I got the peppers from the jar. And I got, uh, yes, and there is the, the walnuts and there is the, the pomegranate molasses. For me, before, I used to have so much trouble finding pomegranate molasses here. You just couldn't yes. find them. I mean, now they're everywhere. And people uh, behave as though it's always been in their family, like I throw it on this and I throw it on that. And I saw all this happening gradually. And now, of course, my grandchildren, all their friends do all that. And, And I am influenced by my grandchildren, not only by by the creative chefs 
whom I love and I admire and I'm a fan and um, of what they do. And uh, But my grandchildren, yes, they go... I mean, my grandchildren are in their 30s. And, and you cooked, <laughs> and you tried a lot of these recipes out on them, didn't you, during lockdown? You had socially distanced lunches and yes. dinners where you were trying out yes. a lot of these recipes from... And, of course, they live in London, so they would be totally part of this world of, you know, the, the sort of the Middle Eastern yeah. uh, cuisine that's everywhere. Yeah. Um, I must ask you the stories. Oh, yeah. so what do they think about it? Well, first of all, they come a lot, which I'm really happy uh, because they came as very little as well. And, um, yes, and they come and they say, why don't you put a bit of sumac on there? <laughs> they know it all. And, you know, they put lots of chilli and they arrive uh, with their own things. And they've taken photographs of all the things they eat in, in their little restaurants. And and when they were testing, they were testing very, very seriously. They also are at an age when they want stories yeah. as well yeah. because my children didn't want to know about my stories ever <laughs> you know I used to give classes cookery class at one time and gave stories tell tell stories and, and my daughter one of my daughters said oh no they don't want to hear that <laughs> I think it's happens it's common and it's usual that your children take yeah. you for granted. Yes, of course. Just your you. And, and the grandchildren are the ones. <laughs> I know, I can't wait. Um, staying with who you are, Claudia, there's a lot of Frenchness about you as well. You've um, had a studio in Paris for 32 years. So your second food moment tells the story of when your children were small and you were camping in the Vaucluse in the south of France. Tell us about Yes, that. well, I had a, a friend called Anne Hay whom I had been to art school in London with. She was Dutch and she was a sculptress and she built a house in the Vaucluse in a place called Lacoste on a hillside. And she was just building it and her colleagues and her students were all helping to to build. And, you know, they were bringing old um, doors from all over the place, from the area, from Provence, and old windows and fireplaces and built around that. And and we had a tent, and I sat up there, and she said, can you help cooking for all of us? She also cooked. So the two of us were cooking, and we had made a big fire. Uh, well, we had... Well, I wasn't good at building, but they had built a place where we could bring logs and so on and grills. And so we were grilling everything, but we were also had pots and we could stew and make soups and things. But I would send the children to go and get herbs because the garrigue was full of herbs and they went hunting and we would put them in the fire to give a, a smell to the grills and yes it was it was uh, for me quite a fantastic time also because i went to do the shopping we went to the weekly markets around apt and the joy of a market for me is still always there mm-hmm. Uh, yes, and you don't ever forget that. 
of course, I did know the south of France already because when we were in Egypt, my father, after the war, took us on holiday to the south of France. I uh, also was at school in Paris as a boarder and for three years. And the girls were, uh, it was a big state lycée with only a boarding school with students. There weren't many boarders. We lived in a sort of villa in the Bois de Vincennes. And there were girls who were from Marseille and from Carcassonne. And, and we used to discuss food and we used to mainly play with food. When I mean play, it wasn't a good thing. It's throwing it at each other. <laughs> <laughs> but you must have been talking about the kind of the food that you, you would have had. Uh, you know, Marseille and Carcassonne, very different kinds of food that you'd find in Paris. I, I read your book, Claudia, yeah. last week when I was in Paris and the south of France. I was travelling through by train and oh. it was just such a, such a delight. And, and I was thinking as I was sitting in, in the Paris cafes on, on our way back, you know, how how long you've been there and how much change you would have seen. I mean, there there was always massive diversity in Paris. I was a 17-year-old a au pair in the Boulevard Saint-Germain um, and, and I loved the kind of diversity then, but actually there's so much more. I mean, how has the food changed in Paris since you've been there? What, what have you noticed? Well, the food in Paris, you could get good food even after the war, in the cafes, in the little restaurants and even student restaurants which is where we went uh, but uh, certainly the food of the south of France was not even considered French mm -hmm. they right. ignored it because it wasn't the great French cuisines of all the different regions the south was considered foreign because it was partly Italian partly Arab Partly all kinds of things. But certainly now, you don't, although a lot of people who travel looking for regional French cuisine don't find it very easily now. Uh, no. They don't. And they, they find it more easily in Paris because a lot of restaurants are doing regional foods now in Paris. And certainly the cooking of the south has become i think the most fashionable and it's interesting because you 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 do talk about this in your book and you say you know la cuisine du soleil or la cuisine des épices the the cuisine yeah. of the spices that's the the food of the south and it was it was actually associated not just with immigrants but with poverty yes because the immigrants had couscous and that yeah. was the food that even the french poor could eat couscous cheaply And it yeah. was, there was a time when they were talking about la conquête de la France par le couscous, that it was a conquering. <laughs> But yeah. And that's the fear, isn't it? That there's too much of it, that it takes over, that it changes the spirit and the soul of a place rather than adds to it, it enriches it. I think in France there has been for years and years always a crisis which was, uh, or rather, uh, tension between those who want to leave the foods as they are and not spoil them, um, not overcome them, and uh, the ingredients have to be 
to bring out their essence and those who are the apice. And there was even a period, I'm not sure whether it was 25 years ago or something, they called it La Guerre des Épices. And La Guerre des Épices was also a war against the immigrants in the South uh, because there suddenly there was the ginger that was appearing and uh, all the the spices that you get in, in North African food, they were trying not to adopt them. Things change all the time, uh, but certainly you do find in restaurants in, in Paris uh, a mix, and you do yeah. find the pieces there as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's about national confidence, really, isn't it? It's about opening, appreciating yeah. other people. Vive, vive la France, as the French say. Let's go to Spain for your third food moment. Now, you also, you're very Spanish. It's part of your identity, too. Your grandmother, Eugenie, she spoke a medieval Judeo-Spanish, and... You know, her history goes right back to 1492. You've chosen the gazpacho to tell that story. I had gone to the Hay Festival Alhambra to talk about the influence, the Arab influence on on the food of Spain. And we were several people. They said, there's this uh, Manolo is inviting you to stay in his house. And it's in a village in Jaén. And it's Andalusia. And I thought, well, yes, I always say yes <laughs> to, to invitations of that kind. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, it was quite fantastic. He was living, he was called El Sereno, and Sereno means the night watchman. I thought it was because he was serene, because he was serene as well. And he invited me and another Spanish woman, a friend, who is also a food performance artist and also a food writer, Alicia. He was also the president of the uh, Gastronomic Association of the whole region of Jaén. And great he great to meet. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> he was so lucky. And he... Um, he had his tomatoes, and uh, well, we made gazpacho, uh, and to fill six uh, six huge bottles of uh, Coca Cola, the giant ones, and we brought them to the event, the big event of the gastronomic association, and to me, it was you know one of those fabulous moments that makes my life happy just to think about it we by the way he made his own oil in a washing machine he had converted into a press he did he had his own armor he had he grew all his vegetable but when we were there we were entertained there was a huge huge paella being made really gigantic one you you know to feed a hundred 200 people but yeah. but then there was four musicians old men who were playing and uh, singing and people just got up to sing and they were singing about the time when the people were poor which this man had been he was working since he was seven years old yeah <laughs> that's what flamenco is all about yeah but now 
the world isn't like that. Now it's immigrant workers who do the work. So the life of that time goes on in the food. The food is a record, but also their songs and their music. Absolutely. Your, Your fourth food moment is to Venice. Creamy polenta with mushrooms. I'm doing this tonight, by the way. I've got some people coming around and I, I'm doing this and the chestnut mushrooms in rum to follow. Oh, good. Um, tell oh, me why, good. You chose, why you chose this one. This, this sounds absolutely glorious. Yes, because I ate it at a fantastic, magical dinner uh, at the Gritti Palace uh, in Venice overlooking the Grand Canal. And it was a banquet or a a big dinner, a long, long table of all chefs from all the regions of Italy. They were chefs who had committed to keeping up their traditional, their regional traditions. And uh, it was just being there with them but being there in front of the canal, I could never, ever have hoped for a happier, happier time. But they all gave me their, their uh, cards and said, when you come to my region, come and see me. But uh, I was very lucky there as well. There was a cookery teacher from Friuli who said, I'll take you to Friuli. But she also said, I want you to go and see this man in Venice because he is the president of the an association called I Appassionati di Cucina. It means people passionate about food all over Italy. And he said, go to see him. I've just phoned him and he'll give you all the um, phone numbers of all these passionate people. And so I went to see him and he was, he had a foundry and he, first of all, I had to go and uh, see what he did. He did a roaster for a big fish to roast it in front of a fire. And he all also made a peperonata. And the peperonata is in my new book as well as a, mushrooms <laughs> and uh, he just we ate there and there also there was happiness and I uh, I had this incredible luck of having people in regions I could go first of all he phoned those in Verona in Mantua he said there's this lady she's writing about our cuisine uh, uh, help her and everywhere I went I just thought, I can't be luckier. The doors were open. Yeah. How absolutely wonderful. Claudia, I know everybody's talking to you about legacy and, you know, what what do you say to the next generation? But actually, what I'm interested in is after lockdown, where we, we've raised an anxious generation of young people. You know, the 20-year-olds now have spent the last two years really not going anywhere as an intrepid adventurer who started so young looking for those stories saying yes Yes. to everything talking to everyone following all following your nose and following every lead what would you say to that anxious generation yes i would say go for everything and enjoy life Uh, i think the young generation is 
is worried about the climate. They're worried about war. They're worried about a lot of things. And they have reason to be worried. But I think we've got to encourage the reasons for joy, the reasons for pleasure, and also the reasons for conviviality, for friendship, for community, because there you get a lot of joy, and it's joy you can control. I think you can say to people, come and eat. (laughs) You can go and eat, of course, in a cafe. (laughs) You don't have to ask them over. But even to give them one little thing that you've cooked. Feed people. People are always happy and they always remember somebody who's cooked for them something. The littlest thing. And so cook for pleasure, cook for health as well. Because health is important and people are right to be concerned. But I think there are, of course, a lot of... of diets and lots of things going around which are probably not very valuable. I think, you know, use your common sense, but also use your taste. Cook what you like. Uh, A lot of people now, you can't say to the English what has been handed down generation after generation because what has been handed down to their children or to, will be what your Tam is cooking, <laughs> or what, uh, what uh, all our chefs today are cooking. Uh, that's what they're cooking, and it changes all the time. And so I'm not sure whether they'll be able to say something that is my identity. Yes, that's a very interesting subject. You know, who are we with our food? Are we a big, great big melting pot? Are we people who are so relaxed with who we are that we can eat everybody's food and love everybody? Or are we just confused about who we are? Yes, there's a lot of young people who say when they ask about their gender, they say they're fluid. And I can say when I'm asked about my identity, I'm fluid. (laughs) And my book, Med, is a book, uh, I think a celebration of Mediterranean fluidity, Mediterranean uh, culture, Mediterranean civilization, and also a Mediterranean that isn't embalmed. It's moving and it's creating. Thanks for listening. You can buy all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at julysmith.com there do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my news including the supper clubs don't forget to rate and review the podcast on apple podcasts and i'll see you next week when i'm with the fortitude baker d retarding